I'll uh, mention to you now because I'll forget when we get there that when we sing the last hymn this morning, I'm hoping we would sing verses 1, 4, and 5. Will you remember that all the way through the sermon? 1, 4, and 5 of the last hymn. Then if I forget to tell you, you'll know. Turn to in your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 13. We're continuing study in God's Word here. I had to make a decision about whether to just deal with the last paragraph or portion of Matthew 13 or whether to include with it the first part of chapter 14. And there is such a strong unity of theme that even though it means saying less about each part of it, I wanted to put them together felt that you should see that united sense in which one message is here of two servants of God, one, of course, Jesus himself, the other, John the Baptist, both, in a sense, being rejected in different ways exactly, but as prophets from God, not being honored for who they were and what they had to say. So I'll read this portion beginning at 1353. Give your attention to the Word of God. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in this man. Now the flashback. Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. (coughs) On Herod's birthday... The daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, He ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. This is the word of God. I ask you to think this morning about what place would you call your earliest and original hometown? There are probably some people here who say, well, I live there. 
I was raised right in the region of Lancaster County where I happen to live right now. I know we have at least a small number of such people in our midst. I remember when I first came here, I was trying to get to know folks, and I remember having small talk with somebody one time, and I said to an older man in the church, and I don't even remember who it was, I said, so, have you always lived in Lancaster? And he looked at me very, almost offended, and he said, oh, why, no, I lived in Leola. (laughs) And I thought, well, goodness, I learned the difference between those two places. Well, we all have a place where we started. Most of us don't live there anymore. Many here come from hometowns all over the United States, some even from foreign countries outside the United States. I think of a what was once a village, now quite a suburb of the Buffalo area. Williamsville, New York was what I called home for the first 20-plus years of my life, through college at least, and then later on for a time. It is a place I have a, a deep sense of kinship to it because the, my five-times great-grandfather was named jo- Jonas Williams, who built a grist mill there in 1811, which still stands, and the place was named for him. So in the sense, I have some place on the earth that I can drive down Main Street and say, this was at least home. That's the place. I don't go there very often anymore. I always think of American novelist Thomas Wolfe, who wrote a a book that caused quite a stir in the early 20th century. Wolfe's novel was You Can't Go Home Again. He wrote about his years of growing up in Asheville, North Carolina, and after that book was published, Wolfe literally had a hard time going home because the citizens of his original town were a little upset with the way they had portrayed, he had portrayed them. He was trying to say that there's a truth there in life. You know, we change, the place changes, the people change, and, and when we go back, you can't pretend that you're still ten and it's all the same as it was. Well, Jesus of Nazareth returned home more than once during his active ministry. In fact, the major part of his early ministry was spent in the rather near vicinity of Nazareth, the town in which he grew up. He did transfer headquarters to Capernaum in the early stage, but, but that really, again, that's kind of like maybe New Holland and Lancaster, approximately. Not very far apart. You could easily cover the distance, and it really was one territory there in the, in the region called Galilee. But now we've reached a bit of a turning point, a hinge point in the Gospel of Matthew, because having now heard this chapter full of parables in Matthew 13, as we move forward, we're going to see in the narrative, in the events that happen, the teaching and the miracles and things to come, a different sort of movement on Jesus' part. He moves out into other places and really begins to almost avoid Galilee. The sense behind it is, given in our passage today to some extent, the region of his youth has demonstrated indifference to the gospel that he has brought, at least largely so, and even outright hostility in some cases to him as the Messiah. The people of Galilee had their opportunity to hear, and many of them squandered it. And we're going to find Jesus now concentrating more on other places, and on private instructions for the 12 disciples. 
I learned in a new way in studying this passage the last few weeks of the importance of the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds for the structure of Matthew. Several commentators maintain this, and I really think they're right, that these two parables are kind of like signposts, the vivid stories and examples of what's going on in the kingdom that you're going to see being acted out in what happens in the historic narrative of the next half dozen or more chapters. In other words, you're going to see seeds of the gospel going out and, and some good growth coming here, but a lot of flash in the pan, something that doesn't amount to anything, and a lot of weeds encumbering the kingdom and not being true response to God's Word. These parables are going to be lived out in people, not plants, in these chapters to come. John chapter 1, verse 11, has the vivid verse many of you will know that could easily serve as the theme for the text we have before us today. John 1, 11 says, Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them he gave power to become children of God to as many as believed on his name. That's a summary of the text here, I think. And the question comes back to us of to ask, how do we receive various messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not just preachers, but anytime we ourselves read the, the Word and the Word itself is a message to us or through somebody's life we see a lesson How are we receiving what we're hearing? Is it possible that some are desensitized against hearing very well because to them the gospel is so familiar, so old hat, you know, kind of like the pattern in the wallpaper that you don't see it anymore? It is true that God's Word will be rejected by minds that are frozen with unbelief, but the great tragedy that we see is that of Christ being spurned by some people just because He seems so familiar to them that they don't even imagine that He could make a life-transforming and eternal difference. Now, in terms of my message structurally today, I'm reversing the order of these two blocks of text because you would understand that the, the uh, par- portion of chapter 14, 1 through 12, happened chronologically first. It's a flashback. It's because of Herod noticing Jesus that we have the, the flashback story of how John the Baptist died. So I want to deal with that as chronologically first and then come to the passage at the end of chapter 13. Looking then at the beginning of chapter 14, we see here John the Baptist courageous in the face of worldly dishonor. This is one of two accounts of this death of John. It's not given in all four Gospels, but Mark has an account that actually is longer and somewhat more extended and detailed. For example, the name of Salome is not given here, but it is in, in Mark. The fact that, that Herod was fascinated by John and liked to listen to him is something Mark tells us, but Matthew doesn't mention We hear about John the Baptist throughout this Gospel of Matthew. In fact, we we dealt with him on a very early Sunday when I started uh, working through this text just about a year ago now. And his baptism of Jesus, his ministry of repentance, not too long ago we came to him in chapter 11 when he was in prison in the fortress of Machiris down by the Dead Sea, and that's where 
this incident in chapter 14 happens as well. It's right where he's in prison. Herod had a palace there besides a jail. And John had sent a question via his disciples of Jesus saying, I, you know, I, I haven't got this figured out. You're not behaving the way I think you should. Are you really the Messiah, the Messiah or should I be looking for another? I called you the Lamb of God there in the River Jordan, but it's not adding up, Jesus. Remember that? Well, he got his answer, and I believe it satisfied him. But today now we're going to hear about the end of this man, a stunning tale of a gruesome death that comes at the hands of a weak tyrant, a manipulative wife, and a seductive teenage daughter. Now, I need to clarify for you, and and maybe I'll make it as clear as mud because it's not simple, who Herod Antipas or Antipas, whichever way you prefer to say it, who he is. There are several Herods in the Bible, and they're hard to, to keep straight. The one you know the best is Herod the Great. He had been a king of a sort of mongrel heritage, partly Jewish, but partly Idumean, and he wasn't a a practicing Jew, and so the Israelites really despised him. And of course, the Romans kind of despised him too, but they tolerated him and left him in place as a a kind of puppet. He didn't have too much power. He, He was always on a short leash but they allowed him to be there. Well, Herod thought he was, a, you know, he, I think, gave himself the title, by the way, the Great. You know, what, what would you do with somebody who went around and called himself Bob the Great, you know? Well, this was Herod. I'm the Great One. And, and he cultivated that all the time. He had ruled in that area for quite a while before the birth of Christ until about 4 A.D. Now, just to keep it straight, he's the one that the Magi came to, you know, and we have heard somebody's born king of the Jews. Oh, he said, great, let me go worship him too. You remember that? And of course, he didn't want to worship him. What he wanted was what resulted in the slaughter of the babies of Bethlehem. That was Herod the Great. Died in 4 AD, unmourned by anybody, including his family, believe me. This guy was a, a miniature Hitler. All right, he had four sons. Two of them really aren't all that important, but two of them figure into this text. Herod Antipas is the one we're concerned about, and Herod Philip is another one. Now, among these four sons, the territory of Herod was divided up, and because they split it into four quadrants, each of those men was called a tetrarch. A tetrarch means ruler of a fourth. That's what the the term comes from. So here we have this man, Herod Antipas, who now was ruling, in a sense, in Galilee and Judea, the main area where Jesus was moving about. He wasn't really a king. In fact, later on in his life, he went down to visit Emperor Caligula in Rome and said, make me a king. I want to be a full-fledged king. And Caligula had him thrown out. So he didn't even have much respect from the Romans. But he liked to swagger around and posture and, and live in luxury, a rather decadent life. If Herod the Great was a a cruel dictator. I like to think of Herod Antipas, the son, as a man who was a legend in his own mind. That's about what he was. Now, he married an Arab woman. If you know anything about the city of Petra, perhaps, that city in the canyon in the southern part of Palestine, a marvelous place to visit where these dwellings are carved out of the cliffs, and you you have to go through a, a narrow passage to get in there to Petra. 
the Nabataeans lived there, and it was a Nabataean princess who married Herod Antipas, but that didn't last too long. He tossed her aside when he met this woman named Herodias, who he immediately loved. Herodias was his niece. And to make it more complicated, when he met her, Herodias was married to his brother, Herod Philip, her uncle. This is a real mess. Yeah, this fits right into the afternoon soap operas. Here were these two men, both loved this woman. Herodias said, I want Antipas. She divorced Herod Philip and went off with Herod Antipas. Well, John the Baptist railed against this marriage with good reason. He had the Bible behind him, Leviticus 18. This was incest. Both of these marriages were wrong. These men were her uncles. And the second one was her brother-in-law that was forbidden to have this kind of a marriage. But these were people who, like people today, didn't think God's standards particularly applied to them. Well, Mark 6.20 says that Herod Antipas found John the Baptist to be quite fascinating. On the one hand, he hated the guy because he was a disturber and a loud prophet, but he also was intrigued. And apparently, would it would you know, whether he went down to the jail cell or brought John out every once in a while, he liked to listen to him, it says in Mark. Not so Herodias. Not at all. Whenever this grasshopper-eating strange guy in animal skins came around and started wagging his bony finger at Herodias, she said, get him out of here. And she wanted him killed. She didn't want to be told she was an adulteress and that she was committing incest. And so Herod was jail, or, uh, John was jailed by Herod for a period of time to please the little woman here who, if there was a biblical award for wicked witchery, probably ranks right up there with Queen Jezebel of the Old Testament, I would say, for villainesses of the Bible. Think of the contrast of these two men. Here's Herod Antipas, several palaces, loves luxury, loves to throw banquets and get drunk. By the way, his birthday, the kids will like this, his birthday party, this is the only birthday mentioned in the New Testament little bit of trivia for you. It doesn't mean anything other than that. But here he is. He loves to party. He loves to live in a decadent way. And here's John, an austere man with a, an austere diet and, and way of life, very disciplined. Here's John, who is righteous and fears only God, and Herod Antipas, who was cynical and feared just about everybody except God. Here's John with immense moral courage, and Herod with all the spine of a worm. And here's John following his conscience before God and losing his head for it, literally. And Antipas, who cuts off John's head, losing his darkened conscience as a result. Now, we don't know how it was that John antagonized here, but somehow he he managed to continue his denunciation of this immoral marriage in such a way that he sounded an awful lot like the Word of God vocally spoken. And that's the way the Word of God is. It's bold. It's clear. It's right. It doesn't negotiate with human temptations to cut corners. It doesn't cater and have a different message for the rich and powerful from the poor and helpless. It has one message that doesn't compromise. Now, along comes Salome. She's not named here in Matthew, but she is in Mark the daughter of Herodias, the daughter of Herod Philip. 
brought in in the midst of this licentious birthday party. It's pretty obvious in both accounts that everybody there is drunk. The commentators feel rather sure that since she was a a young woman under her mother's authority yet, since girls got married in their mid-teens in those days, she was very young. She might have only been 12 to 14 years old. Imagine, not just allowing, but sending your daughter in to dance, a lewd dance before a lot of drunken men lusting after her. And your own uncle reacting as being so pleased with that that he gives her the gift of anything she asks for. Well, if Herodias set this up or not, she certainly was ready to take advantage of it. And she told Salome the price that she should ask for. She didn't say, have John killed sometime or soon. She said, have his head on that platter right there. That meant tonight, without a trial, which was illegal, and behead him, which was not the way Jews were executed, but it didn't matter. And so the bloody head of John the Baptist is brought in as the result of this appalling night of debauchery, and thus died the last of the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah, it is said, was sawed in half. Many other prophets were killed in bizarre ways, cruelly disrespected for the message they brought from God, and John meets a similar fate. Now, what can we learn from that? I would say we would learn the simple lesson that those who are going to speak the truth of God or the truth of Christ are going to suffer perhaps a fate similar, a fate of rejection similar to that that Christ himself and and many of the prophets have always suffered. Why do we expect that living as a Christian witness is possible and being ultra-popular with the people we speak to is always going to happen at the same time? If we're going to be uncompromising in the manner that, that the Scripture is, we're going to have to speak with scriptural clarity. Now, that doesn't mean make yourself as offensive or obtuse as you know how to do, but it does mean that you don't sugarcoat the message. You don't dilute it. You don't say, well, what, what would this group of people like to hear, and, and what parts should I leave out so that I don't offend everybody here? This is one of the really big problems in pulpits and in ministries and authors and many other forms of so-called evangelical faith today. You have a a brand of gospel light, L-I-T-E, that tries to give people enough of the gospel but in a form and in a message that they will enjoy and it will build up their esteem. Oh, we dare not offend self-esteem these days. That's the God of the age. And it offers people Christ without a cross to people who really don't have any sin, who are all headed to some vague never-never land anyway, regardless of what they believe or how they live. It's not hard to do that with the gospel. All you have to do is start leaving out some, some crucial things. Leave out the burrs that sort of catch under the skin and tear a little bit. But here is John being courageous in a situation of obvious danger. He was no fool. I'm sure he knew this was probably going to get him killed. 
But he knew that being a messenger of the truth of God in any situation, whether public or private, then or now, requires a certain courage not to flinch at the hard edges of the truth. You cannot just simply speak smooth things. God's Word has a lot of smooth things. It has a lot of wonderfully comforting things. But we can't just talk about those and leave the others out. If we do, we're not going to sound much like Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew, of all the four Gospels, has the hardest words. Words about hell and gnashing of teeth and difficult things that people would like to skip over. They say, oh, let's go read the Gospel of John. Instead, it sounds smoother there. Well, God gave us all four Gospels to hear the whole message of his Son. And I would say to you, there's a lesson in the fact that Herod Antipas, hard as the message was, antagonistic as it was, accusatory as it was, at least he listened, and according to Mark, he was even fascinated to listen, and the Word did get into him, and it was doing something in him. So don't try to prejudge what the message of God's Word will do. Be faithful to it if he gives you the place to be his messenger. Now, secondly, I'm going to go to the other portion here because we're told at the beginning of Matthew 14 that after this death had occurred, when hearing about Jesus and his miracles, Herod had only known one great miracle worker up close, so he said, hey, whoa, John the Baptist, in my superstitious ignorance, has come back from the dead. I want to see this guy. Sidebar, by the way, Herod Antipas did meet Jesus on one occasion, on only one occasion, and you probably remember when it was. It wasn't right away. It was the night before the cross. When Pilate said, hey, I've done what I can with this guy. I'm not getting anywhere with him. Herod's got some jurisdiction here. I'll send him over to him. Do you remember Jesus' nice little conversation he had with Herod? No, it wasn't a nice little conversation. Herod plied him with questions, and Jesus would not answer him. Do you think this had something to do with it? The man who had, in his folly and weakness and unbelief, had had God's prophet John killed, Jesus wouldn't speak to him. Well, we look at this passage now quickly at the end of chapter 13, and we read here that Jesus came into his own country. Now, that's Nazareth. It's not named, but it means Nazareth and the surrounding area of Galilee. Luke chapter 4 tells another incident that some people confuse with this, but we really think it's a separate incident, probably at an earlier time, when Jesus, the hometown boy who was still held in high esteem, came to the, the synagogue in Nazareth to preach. You know, We had Stephen Light here, a, a son of our associate pastor, seminary student, preach, and, and folks came with interest to hear this young man. Exactly the same dynamic. Jesus came to Nazareth, and everybody's, whoa, let's hear what he's got to say. We hear he's pretty smart and knows the word. And they handed him the text. By the way, the texts were assigned. Jesus didn't choose to preach from Isaiah 61. There was a lectionary, an assigned text. He read Isaiah 61, which talked about the servant of the Lord, folded the scroll, and said, today in your hearing, this text is fulfilled. In other words, it's me. I'm the servant of the Lord Isaiah was talking about. Did everybody stand up and applaud? Check Luke 4 out. They came at him in a rush, his hometown friends. 
shoved him and pushed him out to the edge of town where there was a cliff and they were ready to throw him over. And he walked away. Hmm. He actually came back there. Maybe they'd forgotten a little bit, but here he comes back. And again, the town is stirring. The town is buzzing. Where did he get this wisdom, these miraculous powers? Do you hear what he's been doing? They're all stirred up because Jesus didn't fit anyone's preconceptions about what the Son of God was supposed to be like or do or say. Even John the Baptist, you remember, didn't understand him and sent the question to say, are you the right one? You don't look like the one. Everybody thought he would seize political power and do it that way. He didn't do it that way. What do you do with a long-expected Messiah who doesn't dance to the popular tune? Well, these people found every wedge they could to bring against him. Well, it must be his parentage. Let's see. We know about that. Isn't he the carpenter's son? You know, some, I'm sure some guy said, well, wait a minute. He built a wheelbarrow for me. And, and another guy says, yeah, he, was, he and Joseph worked on my roof 10 years ago. I know him. Why, he's just a roofer. He's just a wheelbarrow maker. Well, there was something about Jesus' parentage that was worth talking about, but they didn't get it right, did they? He wasn't the son of Joseph. He was the son of Mary, born of a virgin, and his parentage was, was something that made him utterly unique. And if they had grasped that fact and known it, they would have wondered and, and been amazed at it. Well, then they disparaged him because his family. Oh, we know his family. He couldn't be anything special. By the way, editorial insertion here. We have the names of the four sons of Mary and Joseph, their natural sons, James, Joseph, Simon, Jude. James and Jude wrote books of the New Testament, became the Lord's disciples later on. And it says there were daughters too, so at least two more, six children minimum to Mary and Joseph. Kind of blows away that utterly false and foolish doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Sorry, folks. It won't work, or else get out your scissors and cut these verses out. Mary was a normal woman. After she gave birth to the Savior by the power of God, she and Joseph had normal children. But the point here is, why assume that because you know something about a person's family, that that categorizes them, and, and now you know everything there is to know about that person, and you can just forget about it? You see, people weren't interested in the facts about Christ. They weren't interested in miracles happening right before their eyes. They weren't interested in saying, this authority that he speaks about from the Word and from the law of God cannot come from a man. He didn't get it from a university. It must be from God. They weren't interested in facts. They just said, we'll rest with our impressions. We'll let our impressions tell us what we have to know. No way can he be anything better than the rest of us. Who does he think he is anyway? I wonder what the early neighbors of Abraham Lincoln thought when that young man ended up in the White House. I wonder what the early neighbors of Ronald Reagan thought when that man ended up in the White House. You know, we don't expect from out of our midst God to do something amazing. We say, well, sure, God's going to send the Messiah to some town, but it won't be my town. Well, it was their town. And instead of honoring him for that, you see how Jesus reacted in the last verse of chapter 13. It says he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Mark actually states he could not do 
I think that needs a careful qualification. It wasn't a could not as if his supernatural power had somehow been shut off. It was really mostly a would not. He circumscribed himself, self-imposed limits. He put it in another way in, in the Sermon on the Mount, don't throw your pearls in front of swine. If there's no faith, if unbelief has hardened into walls of complete resistance, then withdraw. And that's what he begins to do from this point on. As I said, his ministry in Galilee is mostly over. They were scandalized by Jesus. The Greek word skandalon is here for their amazement. It's, it's not just the amazement of, wow, that's great. It's the amazement of, what? How could he do that? They were scandalized. Well, let me tell you, you don't have to be a resident of Nazareth to be scandalized by Jesus. I see it all the time. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of American men and women are taken to Sunday school to hear stories from the Bible. And, oh, they learn them all, you know. Zacchaeus up in the tree and the man being let down through the roof and and all the colorful stories, including John's head on a platter. And then they go up through their teenage years and maybe they go off to college. And now some self-important egotistic teacher stands in front of them, who is, by the way, a fool in God's eyes, but who stands in front of them in a university classroom and says, oh, I hope you people aren't still thinking about the Bible and all those fairy tales you grew up on. You need to give that stuff up along with Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. And young people don't think, oh, my goodness. Well, I certainly want to be an intellectual. Well, I certainly want to be an educated, mature adult. I, I guess that stuff is really just what the professor says. And there are people who got close enough to the Sunday school Jesus, but not close enough to ever see they were really talking about God in flesh. Their superficial familiarity with him is just enough to breed utter contempt at some point. And you know, it really would have been better almost to be a person who lives out in the jungle in Peru or New Guinea with no Bible background at all, who someday hears somehow by a missionary or some means the message of the cross and the power in which it comes that that you have a weak, inadequate, sinful life, but God comes in the righteousness of his Son and offers him to be your Lord and your Savior, and you hear that message fresh, and you fall down on your face before it and say, yes, he's my Lord. Because you see, it's, it's like being inoculated against the disease. You can be inoculated against Jesus as the Christ. And his familiarity will keep you away. You're like the man who goes off to Alaska saying, I'm going to go, boy, I heard they found gold. I better go find gold. And, and there's more gold under your garden than there is in Alaska. Ladies and gentlemen, until you are willing to have the hard ground, and we all have hard ground in our minds and our hearts, plowed up by the cutting truths of the plow of Scripture. And then to confess your sinful nature before a holy Savior who stands in your place and offers you what you can never find or achieve for yourself, you might remain like these people in Nazareth, stone dead in your church pew every single Sunday, familiar with Jesus and totally unacquainted with him. You spurn the Lamb of God. 
You turn your back on the Son of the Highest, the Lord of glory. He's so familiar, he's like wallpaper, and you don't know him at all. 